The Economist. In London, this is The Economist with Tasting Menu, a selection of the tastiest morsels from this week's issue. I'm Anne McElvoy, Senior Editor. And on the menu this week, Canada is cool again, talk shows in Egypt as a farce, and we say farewell to a daring veteran pilot. But first, Battle Lines was our cover line this week. Super Tuesday foretold a hard-fought general election. Hillary Clinton will be the Democratic nominee and the Republican most likely to face her in November is Donald Trump. That's cause for some to despair. But we argued that 2016 still offers a faint promise of something better. The vote for the presidency could yet yield the reshaping of the two main parties and a political realignment that leads to a less stagnant and gridlocked government. That is, if Mrs Clinton can defeat Trump, the blonde Berlusconi, and turn red states blue. It might sound far-fetched, but it is feasible. Despair over Mr Trump has reached such an intensity among some Republicans that the usual rules about there being no swing voters may no longer apply. But even if a broad coalition won her the presidency and Democrats gained control of the Senate, the US could still be faced with crippling stalemates. Democrats could use their advantage to force through what they can without the support of their opponents while they have the chance. They would then be punished in subsequent elections and the federal government would return to its familiar divided self. Unable to pass budgets, trim spending on entitlements or find money to repair roads. Either that or Hillary might argue for the virtues of democratic compromise. If she were able to pursue a different kind of politics, one that seeks to deal with some Republican concerns as well as democratic ones, she might just hold the new consensus together for longer, reshaping the parties, making the country more governable and burying Mr Trump's offer of an America turned against itself. As things hot up in the States across the border in Canada, they're becoming cool, very cool. Our America's section this week details the rise of Justin Trudeau, the country's new prime minister. Since leading his Liberal Party back to power in Canada last October, Justin Trudeau has been profiled in such glossy magazines as Vanity Fair and Vogue. Trudeau's even causing a stir in America, where Canadian politics usually fail to gain much attention. On March 10th, he will sit down with Barack Obama at a state dinner in the White House, the first for a Canadian leader in 19 years. I can't think of a Canadian politician who has attracted as much attention in the United States, says Laura Dawson of the Canada Institute at the Woodrow Wilson Centre in Washington. And Mr Trudeau owes his celebrity to more than just glamour. He succeeds Stephen Harper, a prickly Conservative, who in ten years as Prime Minister conducted an ideologically charged foreign policy at odds with Canada's multilateralist traditions. Trudeau replaces the scowl with a smile. He personally greeted some of the 25,000 Syrian refugees Canada agreed to admit. Such gestures have helped bring back to life the Trudeau mania inspired by the Prime Minister's father, Pierre Trudeau, a dashing Canadian leader of the 1960s, 70s and 80s. A far heavier hand in power is visible in Egypt and our Middle East and Africa section explained why many television hosts there are happily towing President Sisi's new line. That precision! Look at that car! Wait for the missile to come down. No one gets away. Ahmed Moussa, an Egyptian television host, 
sounded like a kid playing a video game when he showed satellite imagery of Russia striking Islamic State in Syria last autumn. And perhaps that's because Mr Musa was, in fact, showing clips from a video game. We aren't making anything up, said Mr Musa, as he made it all up. The programme, which translates from Arabic as my responsibility, epitomises the absurdity of Egypt's popular talk shows. In February, a host called Hairi Ramadan was suspended after a guest claimed that women in Upper Egypt are generally unfaithful. Another host, Reham Said, was sentenced to six months in prison for airing the private photos of a sexual harassment victim, whom she also blamed for the attack. Many of the hosts not only support the government, they take direction from it. Mr Sisi says back him or stay mum, but some have not. Media outlets that supported the Muslim Brotherhood have been closed down. Most network heads are anyway disposed to self-censor. Nearly all support the regime, which protects their business interests. Business interests of an entirely different sort now, as we move to our annual glass ceiling index. It looks at 29 countries around the globe and how they fare in providing opportunities for women in the workplace. It is still common to see headlines announcing the first woman to occupy some important post or other. In January, the Irish Central Bank appointed its first female deputy governor. And, of course, Hillary Clinton could become America's first female president. So are we smashing through that glass ceiling or just getting to clean up the shards afterwards? Let's see who fared well. Unsurprisingly, the Nordic countries, Iceland, a newcomer to our index, Norway, Sweden and Finland, come out on top overall. In these countries, women are present in the labour force at similar rates to men. And the laggards are? At the bottom of the ranking are Japan, Turkey and South Korea, where men are more likely than women to have degrees, to be in the workplace and to hold senior positions. Even among the higher-ranking countries, we argued there was still room for improvement. Although the share of women on listed company boards has increased since last year by 2.5 percentage points to 18.5%, women still hold less than a third of positions in senior management, a pipeline for board membership. For a fully interactive version of our index, go to our website at economist.com. Now, moving on to our finance section, our Buttonwood columnist this week explained why investment isn't just a rich man's game anymore. In their new book, Investment, A History, Norton Reamer and Jesse Downing explain how the industry has changed over time. Early investment was conducted on behalf of the wealthy, often by individuals of low status. In the biblical parable of the talents, a master entrusts his wealth to a range of servants. Two of the servants doubled the master's money, but the third buried it in the ground, rather than investing it with the bankers. For this failure, the poor performer was cast into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now there's something to add to the penalty clauses in contracts. But these days, the pool of investment clients is vast. In America, retirement savings grew from $368 billion in 1974 to more than $22 trillion by 2014, a five-fold increase in assets relative to income. And this much wider client base has made the profession, frankly, less dull. The standard joke was, why don't fund managers look out of the window in the mornings? Because then they'd have nothing to do in the afternoons. These days, though, 
Investment management is a much more glamorous profession. More masters of the universe than keepers of the paperclips. They aren't the only professionals to have been the butt of jokes. Economists have had to prove their worth and reliability too. And over in our science section, we explain why economics does hold its own under scrutiny. Scientific papers include sections on methods so that others can repeat the experiments and check that they reach the same conclusions. Well, that's the theory, anyhow. In practice, checking old results is much less good for a scientist's career than publishing exciting new ones. Without such checks, dodgy results sneak into the literature. And economics, which borrows procedure from the natural sciences, might end up suffering from their drawbacks. In a paper just published in Science, Colin Kammerer of the California Institute of Technology and a group of colleagues from universities around the world decided to check. They repeated 18 laboratory experiments in economics whose results had been published in the American Economic Review and the Quarterly Journal of Economics between 2011 and 2014. After replicating 18 experiments, they found economics had a superior hit rate and they think they know why. They point out that when the field was in its infancy, experimental economists were keen that others should adopt their methods. To that end, they persuaded economics journals to devote far more space to printing information about methods, including explicit instructions and raw data sets, than sciences journals normally would. This may have helped establish a culture of rigour and openness. And it suggests... Natural scientists may have to stop sneering at their economist brethren and recognise that the dismal science is indeed a science after all. Some see a bit more of the universe than others in their professional lives and our obituary this week eulogised a nonagenarian with a stellar career in the skies. Pilot Eric Winklebrown flew 487 different types of aircraft during his lifetime and most of them were prototypes. Many of these craft he operated on aircraft carriers. He clocked up 2,407 carrier landings and 2,721 takeoffs both world records. He tested the earliest helicopters, jets and rocket-powered machines. And this daredevil faced his own demise on a regular basis. His jet-powered flying boat crashed into debris off cows and trapped him underwater. Others got him out. In a Tempest 5, his propeller froze in mid-flight and the engine caught fire. After serving in World War II, the British Royal Naval officer worked with German pilots. German experts helped him. In France, he worked with them to fix and fly the Dornier 335, the fastest piston-engine aircraft. He searched for and found the top-secret ME-262, the world's first operational jet fighter, so swift and with such a punch that he felt untouchable. But he had mixed feelings about his German counterparts. In those years, he came across Luftwaffe aces whom, as a boy, he would have idolised. Having seen The Walking Dead of Bergen-Belsen, he was not about to repeat that mistake. But his job could be summed up as know the enemy, and in a way he had indeed come to know them in that fellowship of death-defying souls. That's my cue to take off. I'm Anne McElvoy, that was our tasting menu, and if you're hungry for a little more, you can find all of our stories on our website at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. Economist.